Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Morning. You know, with election season in full swing and the debates that have been happening, and if you just watch the news, it's all over the place. I began thinking about politicians because this is the time of year where they make lots of promises, don't they? If you elect me to office, this is what I'll do. If you elect me to office, this is what will happen. Unfortunately, most of us know that politicians are famous for broken promises. Saying one thing and doing another. We're saying something and not doing it at all. And so I did a little research this past week. And by the way, I'm not a, like a total political science guru, so hopefully I got these right. But I did a little research on politicians and broken promises. Let me show you some of these. Uh, George Bush, who, by the way, I'm sort of a, a, I sort of enjoy him. I like him. He had a real famous saying he ran on, read my lips. There you go. Did taxes go up? The sources that I looked at said they went up at that time. I, I believe that's right. Broken promise. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt, he ran on, on the, the tagline of a balanced budget. He's going to balance the national budget. Uh, during his presidency, he had introduced something called the New Deal, which totally ballooned the national deficit. Bill Clinton, he ran on the tagline for, uh, we're going to give a, a tax cut to the middle class. Did it ever happen? No, it didn't happen as far as I was able to research. Even Woodrow Wilson in 1916, he ran on the tagline, keep, we'll keep you out of the war. <laughs> During his presidency, we went into the war with World War I. Politicians have become synonymous with broken promises. They have a reputation as an unsavory breed of liars. And most of us can feel that and we agree with that. But it's not just politicians that struggle with keeping their promises. It's you and it's, it's me. In fact, whenever you enter into any kind of a, a business deal, you know that they make you sign all kinds of paperwork. They make you do all kinds of legal agreements because people's words cannot be trusted. If you're in business, you have experienced the fact that the people that you contract to do work for, they will get you to do the work and then they just won't pay you. They will break their promises. In fact, the most famous broken promise of all is the one that many people make before God, literally in a church, where they say, I will be there for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. And many times that promise is broken. In fact, if you start to think about it, it feels like nobody keeps their word nowadays. Nobody keeps their promise, especially when it's hard for them to do. Now, is there anybody out there? Is there anybody that we can trust to keep their promise? As a church, we're working our way through the book of Genesis. 
And today we are in Genesis chapter 21, and we have been following the life of Abraham for the last few weeks. Back in Genesis chapter 12, we saw that God made a promise to Abraham. He promised him that he would have a son. And for the last 25 years, it seems like God has not been good on his word. For 25 years, Abraham and Sarah have wondered, they have questioned, God, you promised us a son, and he's not here. And we have seen the yo-yo ups and downs of Abraham and Sarah's faith. Sometimes they trusted God, and other times they were filled with doubt and fear about God. In fact, at one time, they even came up with a plan to help God keep his word and to give them a son. Remember where Sarah suggested that uh, her husband sleep with the maid, Hagar? They did conceive a, a son, but it wasn't the son that God had promised. In fact, God said, Abraham, I don't need your help to keep my word. I will keep my word exactly as I told you. I'm not like a politician. I'm not like everybody else. My word is good. It's guaranteed to come true. Today, as we get into Genesis chapter 21, Abraham is now 100 years old. Sarah is 90 years old. She is long past childbearing age. If you have been with us for some of the recent studies in the chapters leading up to today, you know that we have learned that Sarah has long ago hit menopause. All of her hopes, all of their prayers, all of their desires to have this child at this point have been tossed out the window because it doesn't happen. 90-year-old women don't get pregnant and have children with 100-year-old husbands. I'm in menopause. I mean, this package is long overdue. It was lost in the mail. But today, this long overdue package arrived. Sarah gets pregnant. God keeps his word. It doesn't matter what the obstacles are in front of it. It doesn't matter what the odds are against it. God keeps his promises. That's the tagline, if you want to say, that we're going to build this whole message around. We're going to, as we go through Genesis chapter 21, we're going to look at three times that God keeps his word against all odds of it coming true. The first one is this. God kept his promise in the birth of Isaac. In the birth of Isaac. Let's read the text. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, quote, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. 
Let's start at the top. There are some things I want you to circle in the text. Circle these words at the very beginning where it says, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. Circle as he had said. Then it continues. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. I want you to circle as he had promised. And then it continues. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Circle, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Three times the Bible says essentially the exact same thing. Isaac was conceived at exactly the time God wanted him to be conceived. God kept his word just like he had said. You see... Isaac was not conceived by a mistake. It was just not one of those chance, random occurrences. Long ago, 25 years in the past, in fact, in eternity past, God had foreordained that Isaac would be conceived and born to Sarah when she was 90 years old. When all of her hopes and prayers of a normal, regular conception were gone. Isaac was born right on time, the time that God had ordained. You know, some of you have iPhones or cell phones like I do, and I have these alarms set during the day, and you know, one goes off at 1.30 to make sure I do some things. All that's necessary is to get to that time, and the alarm goes off. See, all that was necessary for Isaac to be conceived to just get to the time that God had ordained. That was all it was. All the worrying, would God keep his word? That's not in question. God would do it exactly when he planned. Ladies, question comes out of this. Are children ever conceived by mistake? Audience response already. That's great. The answer is no. Isaac was conceived at exactly the time God had planned. Ladies, all of your children are conceived at exactly when God had planned them to be conceived. None of your children are ever a mistake. Their whole lives were foreordained and planned by God before you even conceived them. Even out of wedlock children that have been conceived in an unplanned and unexpected way have an entire life foreordained and planned by a good and loving and gracious God. Look what it says in Scripture. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God has ordained the life of every child. Second question. Why did God make Abraham and Sarah wait until their bodies were old and falling apart before he gave them a son? Why did he make them wait so incredibly long? Here's the point. God was teaching them, and God was teaching us as we study them, that God's word is reliable, that God's word can be trusted no matter what the odds no matter what the opposition. If God has said something, it will come true. It doesn't matter if the odds are biological, like Sarah. 
90 years old in menopause. If God said she would conceive, she's going to conceive. It doesn't matter if the odds are political. Remember David? He was anointed king when he was a youth, and Saul was, was reigning king. Was there anything that would hold that back? No. Saul tried to kill David. Saul chased David. But God had declared that David would be king. It was just a matter of God's ordained time. Nothing can change it. When God called Moses to go into Egypt and come up to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. God has declared that his people will go and leave your land. Moses mocked him. It's like, you're going to take him out of my hand? I'm the most powerful guy on the planet. What can you do about it? God had said that people would go. And it may have taken God breaking Pharaoh's hands off them one finger at a time. But if they're going to go, and because God has said it, it will happen without question. God is not a politician. He always keeps his word. He always keeps his promise. In fact, look what the scriptures say here. Psalm 30, verse, or Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. The point is that what you want to take refuge in is God's words and God's promises. Because if God has promised something to us in Scripture, then we can rest assured that it will come true. He will not break his word. Now, I began wondering, and thought I'd just give you some examples. What are some of the promises that God has given us in Scripture that we can rest assured will come true because God has spoken them? Let me just give you a few, some of these. Here's an example. Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If you know Jesus Christ, God is faithful. He will not let you go. He will continue to mature you. He will continue to develop you to be more and more like Jesus. Even as you go through hard times in life, He promises He will make you more like Jesus. He will not let you go until you see Jesus face to face. That's a promise from God. Let me give you another example. No temptation has taken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with, with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is a promise from God. When each of us faces temptation in life towards sin, which we do all the time, God promises, number one, that he filters those temptations. None of the temptations that face us are beyond our ability to say no. Promise from God. And he also provides with each temptation we face a way of escape. A way that we can turn away from it and get away from it and escape it. Many times that way of escape is simply to stand up and walk away. Many times that way of escape is that we have full ability in our body to turn off the computer and go, go someplace else. He always guarantees to provide a way of escape and that the temptation will not be more than we can handle. That's a guaranteed promise from God. 
you need to keep that in your mind when you're you're wrestling with those temptations. Let me give you another example. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. When it comes to the idea of Christ's return, many people say, well, (laughs) hasn't Jesus forgotten to come back? I mean, it's been 2,000 years, and Jesus isn't here yet. The Scriptures say the reason Jesus hasn't come back is not because He's forgotten to keep His Word. It's just because He's patient with us, giving more people an opportunity to repent and to trust in Christ and to be saved. God's Word will prove true. He will come back. And He will not come back in humility. He will come back, the Scripture says, in power. He won't just come back as our Savior, but He will also come back as the judge of all the earth. God's Word is guaranteed to prove true. This is what Abraham is learning, and this is what we have been learning in this chapter. Let's move on from the the birth of Isaac. Let's look at how Abraham responded. And here's what I want you to know when it comes to Abraham responding. We see that God initiates and we respond in obedience. God initiates and we respond. Like here's what we see. Abraham named his son Isaac as God told him. In other words, he obeyed God's word. If you were in the earlier studies of the previous chapters, you know that Abraham was told by God to name his son Isaac. Isaac. Now, maybe at this point he's thinking, I've always wanted to name my son Louis. I've always wanted to name my son Frank. But God told him to name him Isaac, name him Laughter. And so God keeps his word, and Abraham responds in obedience to his word. Isn't that the way it works for us, too? God is faithful to us. And how are we to respond? In obedience to His Word. Now, when we obey God's words, it's not to earn God's favor. It's because we have God's favor. We obey God's Word as an act of worship, in thankfulness, in gratitude, in, for His faithfulness to our lives. For instance, look at this as an example. Ephesians 4.29 Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Don't use words that tear others down. You don't use swear words. You use words that build others up. Now, why do we have our language that way? Because God has been faithful to us. This is what He's asked. So we respond in faithfulness to Him. We just obey His Word out of gratitude to Him. Let me give you another example. Not only did Abraham respond in obedience to God, but Abraham circumcised his son, agreeing to raise him to know and to love God. Let me just review some of the things we learned in previous weeks about circumcision. By the way, we know circumcision existed long before um, Abraham began to practice it at the command of God. Usually, historically, circumcision was done at the time of 
puberty for boys, around age 13. This is the first time we see it actually occurring around day eight of a child's life, which, by the way, I think was a great and wonderful idea because a lot of boys may not be excited about manhood if their cultural tradition is that they are circumcised at age 13. So if you're going to be circumcised, I think eight days old is a pretty good way to do it and get it over with early. But why did Abraham circumcise Isaac at eight days old? If you remember, circumcision was the sign of the covenant. It was the external sign that Abraham and his family were in a special, unique relationship with God. And here's what's going on. Abraham is not just fathering a son. When he circumcises Isaac at eight days old, he is saying, I am not just committed to having this son, but I am committed to raising my son to be part of this special relationship that our family has with God. He is committing to raising his son to know God and to love God. He is committing himself to pass on the faith. Folks, isn't this what we see in the Old Testament? We see it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the faith of the father was passed on to the son. And when Abraham circumcises Isaac as a boy, he's committing to pass on his faith to his child. Now today we are in the new covenant. And in the new covenant, it says that circumcision isn't essential. What's essential is circumcision of the heart. But fathers still need to make a commitment not just to have a son but to raise a son to know and to love Jesus Christ. To raise a son to continue to pass on the faith to the next generation. Now some of you wonder, why do we do child dedication here at Crosswinds? That's why. Because fathers, it's healthy for them to make a commitment in front of God in front of the church body to say, I am committing not just that I have this son and I'm going to put food on the plate for my son, but I am committing to teach my son to know and to love Jesus Christ and to pass my faith on to him. And this is scriptural. We see it in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but what are we to do as fathers? But bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Isaac was conceived at exactly the time God had planned. Abraham responded in obedience to God's word, naming Isaac his name that God had given him. Abraham responded by circumcising his son, committing Isaac to be part of the covenant people. But what about Sarah? How did she respond? With joy. If you remember back a few weeks earlier as we looked at uh, when God announced to them a year earlier that Sarah would conceive a son. Remember what she did? Anybody remember? She laughed, didn't she? She laughed. Laughed saying, this is a joke. <laughs> Come on, you've got to be kidding, God. I'm, gonna be, I'm so old. Like, I'm actually going to conceive? She's laughing again, isn't she? But it's not a laughter of mockery. It's a laughter of joy. 
I can just picture her, 90 years old. She can't wait to tell every other woman she runs across about God's faithfulness, about God's goodness, about how God kept his word in spite of all odds. God keeps his promise. How could she help but not talk about this? So we saw that God keeps his promise with the birth of Isaac. But we also see that God kept his promise and made Ishmael a nation. The story continues. It says, And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever, whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And when the water of the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And she sat opposite him, and she lifted up her voice, and she wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not. For God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water, and she gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up, and he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. And he lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Start at the top and work our way through. First of all, it says that um, the child grew and was weaned. Isaac was weaned. Now you might say, uh, what's the big deal about that? You need to know in this culture, people breastfed their kids like forever. The standard age of weaning a child was age three. Now, why would you let a child nurse that long? In this culture, uh, infant mortality was incredibly high. In fact, there was some uh, evidence to say that some families didn't even name their kids until their kids were weaned because so many of them died in infancy. And what happens here is that uh, we have Isaac is about three years old. And he's officially weaned. He's going to make it. He's going to grow healthy. He's going to grow strong. And what they're going to do is they're going to have a party. I mean, this is something to celebrate. You have um, 
what is probably the richest guy in the area. And you have Sarah, who is 90, who has waited her entire life for a kid. She is thrilled. She is stoked. They're inviting everybody from all around because they're having a party in Abraham's tent. This is essentially like a three-year-old birthday party. Everybody is coming from everywhere. I personally picture there are probably hundreds of people coming to this birthday party because they're celebrating the fact that Isaac has been weaned. He's about three years old. Sarah is 93 years old. And can you picture her in her glory? Like her entire life, she has wanted to have a kid. And here she is at the birthday party, as it were, of her kid. Everything is going to be wonderful. Hundreds of people there. And things do not go according to plan. Did you realize that? It's a major birthday party foul-up. Remember the older half-brother, Ishmael, that was conceived through Hagar, essentially Abraham's girlfriend? At this time, he is 16 or 17 years old. It says he was laughing at Isaac. Now, what kind of laughing do you think this was? Do you think this was the laughing of joy that Sarah is having? Or do you think this is the laughing of mockery that Sarah had a year earlier? What do you think? It's the laughing of mockery. Ishmael is laughing at his younger three-year-old brother. He's mocking his younger half-brother. Right in the middle of Isaac's big day, in the middle of Isaac's wonderful party, He's a three-year-old, and Sarah is filled with joy that he's been weaned, and everybody's there, and Ishmael is picking on him. Ishmael, the older brother, is laughing him. Now, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 29, or chapter 4, verse 29, Paul comments on this, and he says that Ishmael literally persecuted Isaac. This word in the Greek implies physical violence. Ishmael is acting like a thug. Ishmael is literally beating up his three-year-old half-brother on his big day at his birthday party. He is physically intimidating him in front of the guests. We learned this in previous chapters that Ishmael would be known as a wild donkey of a man. Remember that when he was conceived? The scripture said that about him, that he would be a fighter, that he would be a bully. And here he is carrying out his legacy, beating up a three-year-old at his birthday party. Now, can you see Sarah when she sees this? She may be 93 years old, but she is still a mama. And she has waited her entire life for her son. She is not going to let anybody touch him, much less the son of her husband's girlfriend. You can picture this firecracker of a woman. I picture her literally grabbing Abraham by the ear and dragging him into the tent. And she's given him one of those looks. Guys, do you know what those looks are? 
you know, when, you know, wrists on the hips, one of those deals. And you know that if you are smart, you don't say anything other than, yes, dear, because somebody is about ready to die and you don't want it to be you. That is Sarah. Somebody, Ishmael, is beating up on our three-year-old kid at his birthday party, making mockery and fun in front of all of our friends. I am not going to stand for this. And she puts out essentially a declaration, and it's this. Get rid of that slave woman and her son. We're not talking about this. This is not a matter of discussion. I don't care. They are out of here. Now, you can picture Abraham. Sort of torn. He loves both kids, doesn't he? Because for the last 17 years, he's had Ishmael with him as they went out to do morning chores. Last 17 years, he's rubbed his fingers through his son's hair. Last 17 years, he's introduced him in town as, this is my son. He's filled with pride and joy to have Ishmael. But he's been a little ADD. He's been really violent. What is he? He's got too many wives. He's got too many competing sons in the house. Like, what is he supposed to do? I mean, listen to Sarah and kick out Hagar and Ishmael, the son he loves, to protect Isaac? Now, God intervenes at this time. God essentially comes to the rescue in this indecision. He says to Abraham, listen to your wife on this one, buddy. She's right. Ishmael and Isaac cannot coexist in the same house. This is only the beginning of the hostilities that will be between them. Ishmael has to go. By rights, Ishmael being Abraham's firstborn son would receive double the inheritance when Abraham died. By rights, Ishmael would receive the estate when Abraham died. But if he kicks them out, Isaac gets everything. And God says, I kept my promise. I kept my promise to give you Isaac against all odds. Now I'm telling you to kick Ishmael and his wife and your uh, and Hagar, his mother, out of this house. I will take care of them instead of you. I will make him into a great nation. Do you trust me to keep my promise? Do you trust me to keep my word? Same theme all over again. It says early the next morning, Abraham got up, grabbed Hagar, grabbed Ishmael, gave him a skin of water, which is about a three-gallon jug of water, not a lot, gave him a loaf of bread and said, there you go. Out into the desert you go. Now, that's a lot of faith. Sending Hagar and her teenage son off into the desert of Beersheba with three gallons of water and a loaf of bread. God, will you really keep your promise? Will they really survive this desert time in their life? 
Here is Hagar. She went from essentially being the mother who was going to be in charge of everything. Because until Isaac came along, when Abraham would have died, her son would have inherited this massive estate of Abraham. She would have been like the center of attention, the the Grammy in front of it all. And and now she goes from being the woman of everything and her son being the the, the favored son of the promise to being a single mom with no alimony, with no child support, raising a biracial child out in the desert with nothing to help her. Nothing that is going to be with her other than God's promise and a prayer. Single moms, you can understand what Hagar was facing in those moments. Single moms, who don't, you don't have a husband and you're trying to raise children, you're trying to make ends meet. Imagine trying to do it in the desert. That's Hagar. But the scriptures say this, Psalm 146, 9. The Lord watches over the sojourners, and he upholds the widow and the fatherless. And that's exactly what happens. As Hagar is meandering around the desert with her son, the water runs out, the bread goes away. They're literally dying of thirst. Her heart is broken. She finally puts Ishmael down under a bush and goes off a a little distance to cry because she can't bear to watch her son die. Die of dehydration in the desert. God, I thought you'd keep your promise. I thought you were going to look out for us. And in the midst of those moments of tears and brokenness, when she's on the very end of her life, the very last straw for her son and herself, it says God hears her cries and God hears Ishmael's cries from heaven. And it says the angel of the Lord, that is Jesus, he comes down to encourage her. He comes down to give her a hope and a future. And he says to her, you will make it. Lift up your eyes. It's going to be okay. And I'm going to make Ishmael into a great nation. I've got a future. And the scriptures say that God literally opened her eyes to a spring of water that was right in front of her the whole time she was in those moments of despair. She filled that spring of water. She filled that, ju- that, that skin of water with water from the spring and she gave it to Ishmael and, and they made it. They made it through that day. God carried them through the desert. God was faithful to his word. God kept his promise. I want to just notice something here. What had happened was Hagar was so broken in her heart, so depressed over life that she couldn't see how God was providing exactly what she needed just to make it one more day. And it was right in front of her the whole time, wasn't it? But God needed her to open her eyes to see it. Here's my thought. I think 
God many times does the same thing. We find ourselves so broken on the wheels of life. We find ourselves so broken as we face hard and difficult and challenging circumstances that we don't seem to have an answer for. So broken that we can't open our eyes to see how God has provided just what we need for that day to make it through. He's oftentimes put it right in front of us. For instance, I hear people say, you know, I just can't seem to find a friend. I so desperately need a friend. And so they get on the internet and they find people, but they, oh, these people are so far away. They're on the other side of the country. I think they're a good friend. Do you realize that maybe God has given you a good friend right here in church and they're right under your nose? You have to pray and ask God to open your eyes to see how he's provided. Sometimes I hear of single people who are saying, I I have to find a spouse. I, I can't stand being alone. So they get on the internet and they go to Christian Mingle or whatever you find. They find somebody they think would be good, but they're on the other side of the world. Do you realize maybe God is providing just the right person? They're here. They're right under your nose. You need to ask God to help you open your eyes to see how he's provided for you. Some people are looking for a job, and they're willing to look anywhere for a job, but they're never willing to look right under their nose, which is oftentimes where God provides it, right here in our community. Here's my challenge for you. My challenge is to ask God to open your eyes to the answers to your prayers, to meet your daily needs, because oftentimes they're right in front of us. And we're so broken that we can't see them. Let's go to the last piece here. God kept his promise to give Abraham the land. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. Now when, Abraham re- now, when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, Well, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. And the two men made a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? And he said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, this, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. And therefore this place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. And they made a covenant at Beersheba, that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. In some ways, this little tagline at the end of the chapter feels out of place. 
But if you think about it, 25 years earlier, God had made two promises to Abraham. Here's what they are. Genesis 12, 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and he said, To your offspring, I will give this land. God promised Abraham offspring and land. God has fulfilled his promise in this chapter for the offspring. And right here, God begins to fulfill his promise for the land. You see, Abraham hasn't really been owning any land. He's sort of like a, a hippie that lives in the back of a Volkswagen van, doesn't pay property taxes, lives on public land. And here what's happened is he has grown so powerful and so mighty uh, that Abimelech, who's the commander of the Philistines, and his army commander have come to him to make a peace treaty because you guys are so big and so powerful, we want to make sure we get along. And Abraham says, okay, well, we'll do a peace treaty, but we have this issue of a well. My guys dug a well in the desert to water our sheep, but your guys keep kicking us out. And so what Abimelech says is, here, you can have the well. And Abraham begins to own the first piece of the promised land. See, God is faithful. God keeps his promises, doesn't he? 25 years later, his first son, Isaac. 25 years later, his first piece of the promised land. A little well. In fact, he's so excited about it, he plants a tree. This tree is pretty neat because this tree is a tamarisk tree. And every time he comes to the tree, he remembers that God is faithful to his promise. No matter what the odds, no matter how long ago the promise was made, God is true to his word. And he, people say, well, what's the story on this tree? And Abraham launches into the whole story that I just told you this morning. How God is faithful to his word and faithful to his promise. And my one challenge for you today as we leave is to remember that God is not a politician. God keeps his word no matter what, no matter long, how long. I gave you some promises earlier. Like we learned that God promises that he'd work everything in our life together for good. Hold on to that. God promises that when we face temptation, that there is no temptation that is stronger than we can say no to, and he will always provide a way out. Those are promises that he made, and he will be faithful to his word. And today and tonight, when you work on your life group worksheets, you're going to see there's a whole bunch more promises that God has made in his word that we're going to challenge you to study and read through and apply to your life and to hold on to, because God keeps his promise. His word always is true. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we, we thank you for your scripture. We thank you that your word is always faithful and it's always true and that we can bank on it no matter what opposition may come our way. And this week I ask that as we read your word that we would not just read it and forget about it, but we would read it and hold on to it knowing we can rely on it because you are the ultimate promise keeper. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.